Welcome everyone, whether you're at the in-person service or you're watching Church at Home or you're just catching up on demand, you've joined us in uh, week two of a new preaching series called Gracism, which is about building a multicultural church that's radically inclusive. Last week, not wanting to just be swayed by politics or fashion or being on trend, we stepped right back to see the whole Bible story of creation, fall, redemption and new creation and applied it to building a multicultural church. We saw that at creation, God created humankind in his image with amazing diversity. He loves the diversity. And by doing so, God gives worth and dignity to every single human being and loves our differences and uniqueness. But At the fall, sin ruins our relationship with God and with each other. Diversity now causes division and segregation and prejudice. Sin also impacts culture and society and education and the church. And that all results in racism and bias and prejudice towards the marginalised. But wonderfully, we saw at the cross, Jesus brings redemption. Ephesians 2 tells us that he crushes the wall that creates hostility and division between God and people. He breaks the power of sin in the world. He invites us into his family and empowers us to overcome sin in our hearts and to pursue justice in society. It means multicultural, multi-class church is actually possible. And in fact, it's desired if you're a follower of Jesus. And then we saw in the new creation, we see diversity and worship. All division, racism, sin is banished. And this inspires us to work to pull the future into the present. And we called that sense of being willing to serve and reach out to each other, especially to those that are marginalised. We called that gracism. And yes, it's cheesy, but if we are to build a multicultural church, something's got to change. It starts here in the heart and ends in change behaviour. So what does gracism look and feel like? Well, we're going to learn over the next few weeks. But David Anderson in his book called Gracism includes a letter from someone who was struck by this message. And it reads this. Dear David, last year, I was in a queue waiting to board my flight. There were no assigned seats, so I had to line up for a long time to be able to get a good seat. As I was waiting, a family of four loudly made their way up to the waiting area. You couldn't help but notice them. They seemed confused and were talking loudly in Spanish to one another, glancing at their tickets and then waving their arms and pulling their bags and their kids into the huddle of travellers. And I thought they were Mexican, but I didn't understand Spanish, so I didn't know what they were doing. It's funny how these queues can look anything but a queue as they snake around chairs and tables. They've got gaps for people to pass through or as someone is speaking on their mobile and not close the gap. However, they are clearly lines and you know who is in front of you and you know who's behind you and travellers respect those unspoken rules. So this Spanish-speaking family were just ahead of me, not in the queue, but hanging beside it, hoping to get absorbed into the line. But I could see people were not letting them in. All eyes were on them and they kept speaking in Spanish, looking at their tickets and looking confused. And although no one said a word, the silence was deafening. You could see people shaking their heads and thinking, stupid foreigners, who do they think they are coming over here and butting into our queues? everybody's body language was saying there is no way you are jumping into this queue 
And just as I, she writes, was perfecting my speech in my head, full of righteous indignation, wanting to force them to the back, the Holy Spirit reminded me of what it means to be a gracist. It means being someone who shows special favour to those who are disregarded, giving special treatment, going above and beyond to extend grace to anyone who is oppressed or mistreated or dismissed because of their race, class or culture. So I pray silently and I ask God for help. And he immediately showed me my treatment of these people was wrong. Did it really matter who was in front of me? What's more important here? What if you were in a foreign country and didn't speak the language and you were confused and tired and fearing that you're going to miss your flight? So I stuck my head out of the line and said, excuse me, please come here. You can come here right in front of me. And I knew she didn't understand, but she saw my smile and gestures and immediately smiled back at me so big that I thought I was going to cry. They were so grateful and I was so ashamed. Why had it taken me so long to do the right thing? That is what gracism looks like. It's the posture that says, I'm going to lift you up. The Apostle Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament uses the analogy of a body to describe how the church should function like that. Now, we usually read this passage in terms of different gifts in the church, which is actually true. But I want you to also see it's about people, too. So 1 Corinthians 12 verses 12 to 14 says this. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. For we're all baptised by one spirit so as to form one body. So whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. And so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So just as the body is made up of different parts, so God's body, the church, is made up of different people, races, cultures and classes. Yes, they have different gifts which are to be celebrated. But notice that Paul clarifies in verse 12 that what he's saying is about being uh, about being one body applies also to race. So that's why he talks about Jew and Gentile and also class. That's why he talks about slave or free. He wants us to see a church of different cultures and classes that is like a body with many parts. Now, how does he want this Corinthian church to value each other and think about ourselves if we are that one body? Well, he says this. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. So he's saying that each part of the body is important and valued. None of the parts are less important than another. No one should feel inferior or superior. In fact, diversity of body parts that means the body can function healthily. And you can only do what you can do and I can only do what I can do. So it's together we function properly. And look at what he says about how we're to treat each other. 
verse 20, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts of those that we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. It's amazing. A healthy body needs its different parts. In fact, Jesus' victory means we, the church, the body of Christ, should see the beauty of diversity. And people who are marginalised, those on the edge, are actually given greater honour, just like that Mexican family at the airport. Paul's saying the parts that are seemingly weaker are actually crucial to the body being healthy and they need prizing and valuing and treating with honour. And it's not that the marginalised are more important, but rather they need help to overcome stigma or being sidelined or being passed over. It means a white middle class church has to push beyond what is comfortable to embrace and celebrate and include those that are in danger of being forgotten or, or marginalised. It's not about the minority becoming like the majority. It's about first and foremost us being in Christ. Everyone matters, but the seemingly weaker parts, the minority, the excluded, need to be given greater honour to redress the imbalance. In other words, we lift each other up. Jesus actually tells a simple story to highlight how we honour and prefer one another. A bit like that. He's um, at the home of a teacher of the law, a Pharisee. And what's happening in this scene is that some people are grumbling about Jesus because he's just healed someone on the Sabbath. So instead of like celebrating this miracle, the teachers are nitpicking about how wrong it is to do work on the Sabbath, which is their day of rest. And Jesus is like, hold on, you would pull a cow out of a well if they fell in on the Sabbath. Now, personally, I'd actually leave it there. Uh, I don't know if I've ever told you that cows kill more people in the UK than any other animal. So I'm a little bit scared of them. So I'd leave them in the well on the Sabbath. But anyway, the cows down the well and Jesus says, you love yourselves and your business enough to work to save the cow. But you're mad at me for loving someone enough to heal at them. You see, he's looking into their hearts. He's searching for love. And then he notices that all the other dinner guests were sitting themselves down in the best seats around the table, the place of honour. And so this is what he says, Luke 14, verse 8. It says, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. And then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, Jesus says, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And then you'll be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I don't know if you've ever been to a birthday party, maybe at a restaurant, and perhaps you've all arranged to meet outside at a certain time. And then finally, when your table is ready, you all file in. Have you ever tried to make sure you're sat in a good seat? You know, the good seat is probably in the middle of the table near the birthday boy or girl. It means that you've got lots of people to talk to. You're seen to be friends with the party host. And you have lots of different people to choose from in 
who you're going to engage a conversation with. The last place you want to be is on the edge. Worse still, at another table altogether. And whatever your background is, we all want the good seat. Jesus is saying he notices the seating dynamics when he hangs out with the religious people. He sees the Pharisees pushing for the best seats at the top table where they can influence or be seen. He sees their pride that assumes that they can sit wherever they want. He sees those in power wanting to push their way to the front at the expense of everyone else. And he calls it out. This is not how things work in my kingdom, he says. He also warns them that even if you try and exalt yourself, it will always fail, as there will always be something great, someone greater than you. So when they come to the party, you're humiliated when you're demoted. You'll never get what you're seeking by trying to promote yourself. The Apostle Paul says something similar in Philippians 2 verse 3. Don't do anything only to get ahead. Don't do it because you are proud. Instead, be free of pride. Think of others as better than yourselves. Jesus also loves to take those that are in the lowest position, that assume nothing, um, that let others go first or push in. In fact, in his kingdom, those people in the minority, the least and the last, they get ushered to the top table. With Jesus, the lowly and humble get the best seats in the house. So listen, have you come to Jesus humbly? Have you come to the humble God who stoops low to allow you into his house? Is it time for you to stop trying to elevate yourself and come to the one who, if you truly love and truly serve, will elevate you to a position of honour? At the church table, Jesus wants us to learn some kingdom lessons. Number one, the way up is down. God's desire is for all to be elevated, to sit together at his table. But the route through is different depending on the state of your heart. You see, without Jesus, the white majority can elevate ourselves by treading on others, by picking the best seats, by excluding others, not even thinking twice about others. But with Jesus, we can lower ourselves and trust that Jesus will lift us up. And without Jesus, the marginalised, those that feel on the edges, can feel completely lost. They're not worried about taking the best seats at the party because they feel they're not even invited in the first place to the party. But with Jesus, the marginalised are particularly celebrated and loved and they're ushered to the top table. That's what life looks like in Jesus's kingdom. The way up is down. And secondly, it tells us that God honours you when you honour others. Jesus says the way you receive honour from God is by honouring others. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, says the same thing. 1 Peter 5 verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So... A really crucial question is asking, how do we honour others? Well, let me me give you a couple of things. One would be multicultural worship. For me, it's one of the reasons we sing from time to time in other language is partly to honour those people in our church 
that speak that language so that they can sing in their own heart language. And so we try and try, we try and choose languages sung by people in our church family. But listen, we also do it because it's partly for those for whom English isn't their first language to know that we see them. We recognise they are part of our family and we want them to know there is a seat at the table. It may not be a song in their language, but another language communicates our appreciation of the different languages and cultures in our family. And we also have multicultural worship because it's good for the English speaking majority to, the, to humble themselves, to not be able to sing or perhaps even say the words or feel the challenge of worship in an unfamiliar way. We're deliberately choosing the humble path so that others can join in, knowing there will be a day in eternity where we get to worship God in our own language so we can give up that right in this life. So it impacts multicultural worship, but it also impacts multicultural leadership. Ben Lindsay, who runs a charity called Power the Fight, quoted this recently. He says this, accessibility is being able to get in the building. Diversity is getting invited to the table. Inclusion is having a voice at the table. And belonging is having your voice heard at the table. Love that. It's very powerful. I hope it, it communicates. It's, it, it, honouring one another is much more than just being invited or even having a voice at the table, but it's being heard. Honouring one another means the marginalised are invited to influence and to lead and be heard. Tokenism is just about platform. Multicultural leadership is about power. And so we at Mosaic need to keep pushing for variety in our leadership at every level, whether that's at mission groups or in ministries or in our gathering core teams and in our senior leadership teams. We need to strive for better representation for women, for different classes and for different cultures. And we've always strived for women to be involved at senior leadership, but we're now really trying to work on more diversity, culturally speaking. It's important you know that we've been working on this behind the scenes and we've got a long, long way to go. We're very aware that our staff team and our eldership team is monocultural. But listen, progress is being made. We're listening to our diversity group but and we are working on seeing uh, diversity in our leadership and we'd really appreciate your prayers as we try and build on this but that's what we do if we're to lift each other up we have multicultural worship but we also have multicultural leadership so let me just bring this all together 1 corinthians 12 tells us to honor all the different parts of the body And the white majority has to push beyond what is comfortable to embrace and celebrate and include the weaker parts, those that are in danger of being forgotten or marginalised. In Luke 14, Jesus speaks to people in power, those who make self-serving decisions and ask them to lift others up. Why? Because in Jesus' kingdom, the way up is down and God honours you when you honour others. So where are you going to sit today? 
Is there something that needs to happen in your heart where you recognise your privilege or desire to be elevated? Why don't you just take a moment now before God? Why don't you ask him, how does 1 Corinthians 12 or how does this story Jesus told apply to your heart? And just ask the Holy Spirit, how am I meant to respond to what I've heard today? Who can you lift up? Is there anyone sat outside waiting for someone to usher them in? Romans 12 verse 16 says, don't be proud. Be willing to be a friend of people who aren't considered important. Don't think that you are better than others. Christians are to exalt others, especially those that society shuns or excludes. God has extended grace and honour to me which frees me to give honour and grace to others. Mosaic, let's be those that lift each other up.